Welcome to the Shadron Berean Church Podcast, where you'll find some of the latest teachings from Shadron Berean Church in Shadron, Nebraska. We are a loving community of believers growing in God's grace in Christ together. The heartbeat of our church is to have deep roots in the Word of God and to bear fruit by passionately applying it to our lives by His power for His glory. And we thank you for joining us. already today is officially uh, the first day of spring are you guys excited about that I am I know I am I noticed this week that uh, some of our flowers were starting to come up and I've, I've even got a picture of, of some of them but uh, I noticed the flowers were coming up I know that the saw that the grass was Turning green. I don't know why my clicker's not working, but uh, uh, I also saw that the golf greens were getting mowed. They had the lawnmowers out on the golf course, so if you're a golfer, you're really getting excited about the spring season. But uh, you know, every every winter, that grass turns dead brown, doesn't it? It dies, then it goes away. And new grass comes up in the spring, but you know there's some vegetation that doesn't turn brown, uh, like pine trees and cedar trees and junipers, that sort of thing. Um, Can you imagine, aren't you glad that there's some trees, some vegetation that doesn't turn brown? Can you imagine if everything just turned brown? Right. That'd be awful. I saw some of your faces out there, right? Even, Even through the harsh winters and drought, there's trees like cedars and pines and and palm trees that are evergreen. They're green year-round. And the question that I want to ask based on the psalm we're going to study this morning is, am I more like a blade of grass that dies off quickly, or am I more like one of these glad evergreen trees that stays green year-round that weathers any season? It's an interesting question, huh? Uh, God's people, Psalm 92 is going to show us, should be more like evergreens that grow stronger and they continue to live despite the conditions around them. They live in a state of gladness. In a state of gladness. How would you describe your state of mind over the past week? Think about it. How would others maybe who work with you describe your state of mind this last week? Would they say that you were in a state of gladness? That you were joyful, that you were hopeful, you were happy? My guess is no, especially if you're addicted to mainstream media. (laughs) I don't know how you could stay in a state of gladness if you're addicted to that stuff. Uh, Guys, with everything going on in the world in recent years and with our nation's rejection of God, rejection of morals, um, that's having an effect on people, okay? The nation's crumbling. People are more depressed than ever. They're more dissatisfied, more fearful, more angry, um, more discouraged, more unhappy than ever. And then all the studies show that. You don't even have to look at the studies. You just got to look around. Just got to look around. And what we're going to learn, though, from Psalm 92 is how we can live in a state of gladness even when the circumstances suggest that we shouldn't 
be, which is where we're at. With everything going on in the world today, how can we live in a state of gladness? And just to remind us, uh, the Psalms, these are like the, the hymn book of the Bible. It's the music book of the Bible. And just like music is known for the, the Psalms and, and songs, the lyrics can, can minister to us in amazing ways. Does, does music minister to any of you guys? Yeah, sure it does. It's very powerful. That's what the Psalms do. Whenever I start to feel uh, discouraged, whenever I feel like I need a dose of encouragement, I mean, I'll interrupt my daily devotional time and I will turn to the book of Psalms. I did it this week and that's how I ended up here, <laughs> to be honest with you, in Psalm 92. I kind of played uh, roulette with my Bible and I just went, well, here we are. This is great. Anywhere you turn in the Psalms, pretty much. It's going to give you some encouragement. Um, it's going to meet you in, in your fears. It's going to meet you in your discouragement, your worries, your difficulties. And the Psalms are going to, going to take you in that state of mind, and then they're going to bring you back to a state of gladness where your heart is properly focused on, on God and what is eternal. They, they lift us up out of the circumstances that we're in. Give us encouragement. And uh, you'll notice prior to verse 1, um, a short superscription there, probably in your, in your Bible, a psalm, a song for the Sabbath day. You guys have that in your Bibles like mine? Okay, this, this could be categorized as a, as a praise psalm. By the way, those, that little, that's just a description of how they use this psalm. Uh, it's, it's not necessarily inspired, but it is helpful. Uh, this could be categorized as a praise psalm. Uh, we've looked at uh, wisdom psalms like Psalm 1, right? Uh, that We have a, a kingship psalm to get to. We've been working through different types of psalms. This one's a praise psalm, and it has a touch of kingship to it and a touch of wisdom. And uh, as you can see by the superscription, it was used in organized worship in Israel ancient Israel, on their day of worship, which would be the Sabbath or Saturday. As the church, we, we worship on the Lord's Day, what we call the Lord's Day, which would be the day Jesus rose from the grave. That's when the early, early church met, and we see that in the Bible. But um, Israel met on the Sabbath, and they had psalms assigned for each day of the week, and this was the one that they would use on the Sabbath day in particular when they gathered together. So isn't that kind of neat that we're meditating as a congregation on these words that Israel throughout history, the Hebrews did, um, back then, thousands of years ago. That's pretty neat. So uh, these, these little few 15 verses are going to console us today, just like they consoled and comforted Israel and the Hebrews back then. So that's pretty neat to think about. Let's read uh, verses 1 through 4. It is good to give thanks to the Lord and to sing praises to your name, O Most High, to declare your loving kindness in the morning and your faithfulness by night, with the ten-stringed lute and with the harp, and with the resounding music upon the lyre. For you, O Lord, have made me glad. There's our word. You have made me glad by what you have done. And so first thing we see here is the call to praise. In our outline there, letter A, the call to praise. And there's, uh, there's the psalmist just calling people to get their instruments out. Do you see that? Guys, 
worship team, right? Get your instruments. Let's, let's praise the Lord. It's the day we've gathered. This is what, what we're called to do. It's good to give praise and thanks to God. Your, the amplified version of the Bible says it's delightful. It's delightful to give praise and thanks, isn't it? Did any of you guys enjoy that this morning? Coming together, giving praise. This is what we're, we're made for, to worship God. And you'll notice there's two names for God here um, that you see already. Um, one is Yahweh. This is identified by the capital L-O-R-D in your Bible. I wish they would just translate it Yahweh and Adonai or whatever instead of just Lord all the time so that we would understand it. You know, But that capital Lord, all caps Lord, is, is Yahweh, and that's the name uh, that, I, that acknowledges God as the personal and covenant-keeping God. He's not the God that's way out there in the universe, off distant. He's personal. He's man's God. I mean, he has a relationship with man and a covenant with man. Right? He does business with us. And he's the God of steadfast, loving kindness and faithfulness. Those are two words that you see there in verse 2. Your loving kindness in the morning, your faithfulness at night. And so uh, he, he's also called here the, the, well, you see the covenant aspect of Yahweh right there in loving kindness and faithfulness, right? And then, then you see the Most High in verse 1. And this name, like we saw last week in Daniel, carries with it the idea of God's sovereignty over everything that exists. The most high. He's the most high. Out of everything that exists in the world, he's the most high being that exists. So he oversees, overrules everything. There's no one and nothing that is higher than him because he created everything and he rules over all of it. That's the Most High God. And when you combine these two names together like the psalmist has done, think of what that's saying about the God that we have. He's the Most High, sovereign God, but He's the God that is personal and a covenant-making God. So nothing's going to stop Him from keeping His covenants. Nothing's going to stop Him from His loving kindness and faithfulness to you. Isn't that great? Nothing can stop him from showing you his faithfulness and loving kindness, and it it's never ceases towards us. That's amazing to put these two names of God together. He oversees our circumstances with his loving kindness and faithfulness at all times, and that's why the psalmist is glad, and that's what glad people do. They trust in God's love and faithfulness in the good days and even in the bad days. doesn't matter what my day is like. doesn't matter if it's good or bad or ugly. I have a faithful and loving God that has a covenant with me. Nothing is going to stop that kind of God. We trust that that kind of God is in control even when the world and our circumstances don't make a lick of sense. And, and, and when the circumstances don't seem to be in our favor, there's a lot of wicked, unbelieving people in the world who need Jesus, by the way. But there's a lot of them who are making the lives of believers very difficult. We see that. I think Larry was just 
referencing it. They make our lives very difficult, and we go through all sorts of trials in this life, but ultimately we know that this kind of God is with us in it all, and He's working all things, Romans 8.28 says, for our good. Amen? By God's very nature, He cannot go back on His covenant love and His faithfulness towards us. And so, instead of questioning the absence of God's love and God's faithfulness, in our trials or in evil days when it seems like on the thro- wickedness is on the throne. No, we, we actually, instead of questioning God's presence, we, we start to lift up these attributes of God. His, we lift up His love. We lift up His faithfulness. That's what we're called to do. We, we lift them up. Difficult days, guys, become reasons to get the instruments out. Are you going through a hard time? Get the instruments out. Start praising God for His love and for His faithfulness because He doesn't change. Who cares what your circumstances say? You know that He's going to work all things for good. Notice that this psalmist is is not just in, in a single moment for an hour on Sunday. This is not a brief emotional high for him. Look at this. The praise that wells up within him is something that overflows in verse... Two, from morning until night. It's in the morning and it's until night, he says. I I declare your loving kindness in the morning and your faithfulness by night. So again, this this doesn't mean he doesn't, this is is an all-day thing, but it doesn't mean that he doesn't have bad days. It doesn't mean that he wears a fake smile, you know, in order to be glad or something. He doesn't wear a fake smile. He It doesn't mean that he's always singing. It means that because he knows this most high covenant-keeping God, his soul can rest and be glad no matter what's going on around him. Isn't that great? And his gathering with God's people on the Sabbath is the result of and the testifying to God's faithfulness and his love throughout the week. So all week long, he's experienced God's love and faithfulness, and we get together on Sunday or them on the, Saturday, on the Sabbath, and, and man, we just praise God together for how he has shown himself to be loving and faithful throughout the week. So it's just natural. It's this overflow. And so you see individual and corporate worship here, and it's, and it's all day, every day, individually and corporately. Isn't that neat? So think of it this way. This is not an obligation for him or for God's people to have to, to, have to praise God. They, you know, they're not, they aren't just putting in their hour on Sunday morning and hoping that God makes life easier for them if they go to church and punch a time card, that sort of thing. You know, as Pastor Doug Berkey said yesterday at the men's breakfast, um, we don't want just a one-day Sunday kind of relationship with God, where we have a relationship with God for an hour on Sunday and the rest of the week we live without Him. This psalmist is, is worshiping God from morning until evening every single day, and on Sunday it just we get all the people together and we all praise God together for how He has worked in our lives. So it's a relationship with God all week and then with God's people at the end of the week. Or at the beginning of the week, technically, right? So uh, the praise here is a natural overflow for those who love God and those who want to sing about what He has done for them. It's this, this natural thing throughout the day and at the end of the week on Sunday and 
you know, if going to church becomes something that we dread and we kind of feel like we have to do, if church is something that gathering on Sunday is something that we can get in the habit of or out of habit of, I mean, something's wrong at that point. Because that's not what church should be like. I think at that point, if church is something that we have to do and we can get in and out of the habit of it, we've turned a relationship with God into some sort of cold religious system. Because we're, we should have this relationship with God whereby we're just, it's natural to praise. We want to praise God because he's, he's working in our lives. We understand how he's, he's saved us. He's working in our lives. We have this hope to look forward to the way he's going to work in the future. We're just praising God for all that he does. And, you know, when I was at Lowe's, I was at Lowe's earlier this week getting some things for uh, the remodeling project here at church. And I was in the checkout lane, and uh, I'm kind of getting my my stuff bagged up. And, and and the cashier says, I don't know how you fall for religious cults like that. And I'm thinking, how does she know I'm a, you know, no, <laughs> you know, I'm like, I'm like, what are you talking about? You know, and I, I look up and I see, oh, because there's, there's a couple people at the next check stand, and they're clearly religious people in a cult-like thing because you could tell by the way they're dressed, all right? And it was very obvious, cause, but she didn't mention that, so I'm like, what are you talking about, you know? How did she know I was a Christian or something? You know? <laughs> but no, she's referencing this, these people who are clearly involved in a cult. And, um, and she said, how do, how do people fall for cults like that? And I said, well, I think it's, in the human nature, really. You don't want to try and be good enough for God by doing religious things, kind of like keeping a dress code. I said that to her. And she kind of, she looked like she was processing. And anyway, I'm grabbing my bags and heading out the door. And she's got someone behind her, right? So it's kind of a hurry conversation. But uh, I'm walking out the door. I've already turned away. And she says, I live by my own rules. <laughs> So, and I turned my head about broke my neck <laughs> looking back at her and I wish I had the time to tell her that's not what true worship looks like that's not what this is about Christianity I, should, I wish I had the time to tell her I'm a pastor and I don't live by rules you know I, I live by grace through faith in Jesus Christ and whatever rules I, I follow in God's word, it's because I have a desire, like an overflow, because of what Jesus Christ has done for me. And I hope that's the case with you. I grew up trying to live for God by a set of rules, and it doesn't work that way, does it? That's a cold religious system. You've got to have a real relationship with God. I mean, my obedience to God is an overflow of love as a result of God's loving kindness and faithfulness to me in Christ. And I hope that that's, that's yours too. I hope it's the love of Christ that compels you. That's the heart of the psalmist here. His praise is a result of who God is and, and what God has done and God does in accordance with who he is, right? And that's what you see next is the, the works of God in your outline there. Let her be the works of God. For you, O Lord, have made me glad by not just who he is, by, but what you have done. God has done things. Okay, he, he, I will sing for joy at the 
works of your hands. You mean God's busy. He's active in his life. He knows God's works. How great are your works, O Lord, your thoughts are very deep. And so the psalmist further clarifies that his living in a state of gladness is due to God's faithfulness and loving kindness that's expressed in the work of his hands, in the work of God's hands. He knows there's a God who has lovingly and faithfully worked in his life. Can, can you guys say that? There is a God who has lovingly and faithfully worked in your life? I hope you sense that. Now, if you're familiar with the Old Testament usage of the work of his hands, uh, you'll start to think of two main works of God, the way that the Old Testament typically uses this. One is in the act of creation, and one is in uh, the act of redemption, his, his saving us or delivering us from different things. And so um, the psalmist uh, he would have looked at the, he was understanding, when he said this, he was probably talking about creation somewhat, part of creation. So he knows that he's not an accidental product of evolutionary chances. You know, he, he understands he has a sovereign God that created him. And that, if you understand that, that will change your entire worldview your whole outlook of everything in this world. Understanding it's, this world is not an accident. God created it. He created you. This psalmist understood that. He understood God, created him intricately and uniquely for a relationship with God himself. On top of that, uh, he, he can probably, just like us, we can, we can look around at the world that God has created and see the work of his hands, the, the continual care for his creation, his provision for it, the charity in it, I mean, the, the rains, the showers, the seasons, all of it. Is, God is so good to us in creation. And we need, to, we need to take that in. We need to enjoy it. We need to see this world as more than an accident. It's not. This world is, is his artwork. It's his kindness. Think of the, the birds singing. I heard the birds singing again this week. Isn't that great? They're back. I keep telling my kids they're back. Do you hear them? Pick up on that. That's God's kindness to you. He, he didn't have to create the birds or create them to sing, but there they are for us to enjoy. And we ought to sing too. The birds are singing. The flowers are, are, are going to start blooming. We've got sunrises and sunsets. Don't let those pass by without acknowledging them and just enjoying the work of God's hands. Um, God rested, remember, on the Sabbath from his creating the universe, and Israel was rejoicing in his creation on the Sabbath. That's what you see here in this psalm. So God created for seven days. This is kind of interesting, just a side note. God created for seven days, and then it's interesting that the name Yahweh is mentioned seven times in this psalm. Um, God's works also remind us of God's salvation, his redemption, um, he saves us. For Israel, they would re be recalling on the Sabbath their history, their, their history of their nation when God rescued them from the, the hands of Pharaoh. He delivered them out of Egypt through the Red Sea, that sort of thing. The psalmist is contemplating deliverance and forgiveness, probably in the, the sacrifices being offered on the Sabbath, that sort of thing. And, and he's celebrating it all. And when we as the church get together. We're celebrating, too, God's forgiveness in Christ for our sins. 
God's delivering us from the dominion of sin and Satan and society. Right? We live, we have freedom in Christ to live for God. And then in the last half of verse 5 there, he says, your thoughts are very deep. Do you guys, do you guys ever think that about God's ways and say, wow, his thoughts are much deeper than mine? They are. Even the Apostle Paul admits that. Look at the end of chapter 11 in the book of Romans. He, he, Paul's contemplating all of God's plan of salvation and how he's working with Israel and the church, and he's just like, whoa, these things are just too much for me. And it just leads him into a doxology like, God, you are God, <laughs> you know, and I'm not. And so even the psalmist and Paul, they never understood or never expected to understand everything that God was doing in their lives. And when it's, when, especially when things were bad and when things were ugly. They didn't try to comprehend everything. They just said, your thoughts are very deep. <laughs> it's too much sometimes, right? You don't have to try to figure everything out. Just trust that God is good to you in the good days and in the bad days. God's ways... Are never are they might be mysterious, but you know, God is still that loving and faithful God to you, even when it doesn't seem like it. His 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 ways, his plans, they're never wrong, they're never late, and we need to trust him. We need to trust the complex plans of God, even when they're undesirable at the moment. I think later on. Sometimes we, in life, we get a look back and we see just how God was really working. Uh, we question Him at the time, but later on we understand, or in eternity, we're really going to understand. Uh, but let's look at the next letter here, the fate of the wicked. This is the next uh, part in your outline. The fate of the wicked, verse 6. A senseless man has no knowledge, nor does a stupid man understand this. That when the wicked sprout up like grass, and all who did iniquity flourished, it was only that they might be destroyed forevermore. So the word wicked here, this could reference um, anyone who doesn't know God, anyone who doesn't have a relationship with God, they've rejected God, uh, someone stupid uh, or foolish, your Bible might say, isn't necessarily referencing someone who's lacking intelligence, you know, Contrary, they could actually be really smart and bright people, but they're, they're stupid to the things of God. Stupid to the things of God, they aren't sensitive to God's love and, and faithfulness through His works like creation. Even though, even though they're surrounded by it all the time, I mean, it's kind of like a scientist who's studying creation through a microscope or a telescope and they see the complexity of it all, and they still give credit to a mindless evolutionary theory. It doesn't, it doesn't line up. They're senseless. They're dumb. Biblically, we can say that. Einstein, very smart guy, right? Discovered all sorts of laws. But if, if, if this universe was a product of evolutionary chance, we wouldn't have those laws. See, Einstein still didn't know God. Smart guy, kind of dumb, biblically, because he didn't let that science lead him to God. I mean, scientists don't create new things. They just discover it, right? They discover what God has put in place. I mean, this, this person that this psalm is talking about, the, uh, the, the, the stupid person, looks at a car 
They look under the hood of a car and they say, wow, what craftsmanship, right? Isn't this amazing engineering under the hood of this car? This car can go zero to 60 in four seconds flat. It's amazing, right? And then they, and they're like, that's, a, that's awesome engineering. And then they turn to the human body and they look at the eyeball and they go, wow, evolution. Dumb, right? That's what this is talking about. Look, the human body is the most complex thing in this world. But we look at it and we say, that's evolution. We look at a car, that's created. That's a senseless man. That's stupid. I've never used that word so much in the pulpit before. It's a biblical word. The word for senseless here, though, could be translated, get this, brutish or beastly. Actually, the King James translates it beastly. According to Genesis 1, Remember this, and this is what the Hebrews understood, and you see this in Genesis, man was created distinct from the beast, right? He creates the beast, and then there's a divine deliberation in the Godhead where they're like, let's create man in our image. And so man becomes the pinnacle of creation, meant to rule over creation for God. Like, like, like the, the beast is to be subject to man. Man didn't evolve from the beast, they're created distinctly. And so man rules over the beast. But this psalm is saying that people without God aren't operating much different than the beasts operate. They're operating just like the beast. They don't see God's works. Have you ever seen a cow turn to another cow and say, look at that rainbow over there. That's so amazing. No, the cow just keeps on chewing cud, right? Eating grass. They don't acknowledge God's, God's works. They don't acknowledge the sunset. How many men today don't acknowledge the sunset that God has beautifully painted in the sky? Right? That's a, that's a senseless man. 1 Corinthians 2.14 says, The natural man, you could translate that, the animal man, does not, under, does not accept the things of the Spirit of God for their foolishness to him. And he cannot because they're spiritually appraised. So man without the Spirit of God in him is just like a beast. He doesn't see the works of God. He doesn't sense it. He doesn't take it in. He's just dull to, to, to all things related to God and His goodness. That's why people need to trust in Jesus Christ and be born again, because the Spirit of God is what illuminates that for you, helps you understand God's goodness in all things, good and bad days. As believers, we might take pictures of the rainbow. We might thank God for his covenant. What do you think of when you think of the rainbow? Let me ask you that. Where do you go in your mind? Genesis 9. To the covenant. The Yahweh, the personal covenant-keeping God. And you look at that rainbow and you say, God is so faithful. He hasn't flooded the the earth since Noah's day. And he won't because he promised he wouldn't. So we see his his covenant in the rainbow. We see his, his, uh, his faithfulness. In that covenant, we see his artwork because rainbows are just flat out beautiful. The senseless man without God looks at it and he sees a refraction of light. And he sees maybe something that brought on the flood altogether. We create a flag, LGBT, that brings the flood. You see the difference between someone who knows God and his faithfulness someone who doesn't. 
There's no awe in the person who doesn't know God. They aren't glorifying him for his works. Anyway, uh, the senseless men can make life very difficult for God's people. But verses 6 and 7 give us another brutally honest principle for God's people to rejoice in. And this is something we can rejoice in. And we will in the future because Revelation records it. Glad people know that the wicked will be destroyed. They aren't going to go on forever making the lives of believers difficult. And I don't want to create an us versus them mentality because we need to reach out, right? But there are some who will refuse to repent and they will intentionally make your life difficult. But here's the thing. They're like the grass. They're here one day, gone the next. That's what the Bible's telling us right here. God allows them to flourish in their sinful ways for some time, but ultimately they're going to be destroyed. And who's going to live on? God's people. God's people are going to live forever. The wicked are like grass. After a short time of flourishing, they die off quickly or they get mowed down in God's judgment. And their, their transience, their temporal nature, is the contrasted in verse 8 with the eternality of God. And verse 8 is the center of the psalm, and it's the crescendo of it. It's the climax. Okay? Uh, and it's, it's talking about the eternal Most High God. It says, but you, O Lord, are on high forever. Eight words in verse 8. That's the crescendo. But you, O Lord, are on high forever. Ever. Remember the emphasis in verse 1 on the Most High God? See, the Most High God is on high forever. He's ruling over everything. And, and, and while, while the wicked think they're ruling, here's God ruling forevermore. It's, it's, a, it's, it's, a, it's an amazing climax. No matter what goes on in the world, he reigns through his universal kingdom. And this is foundationally, I think we get to the foundation of what is causing this psalmist to live in a state of gladness. And it's this, the perspective that though the wicked may look like they're ruling this world, doesn't it seem that way? God is actually ruling over all of them. And their time is short. Their time is short. Guys, this life is like one drop in an ocean of eternity. That's all this life is, just one drop and an ocean. Of eternity, And if you want to live for this life only, the Bible says here, that's stupid. That is dumb, isn't it? To live for this life only, but if you live for God and you live for what is eternal, this psalm is telling us that's, that's what the wise person does. Living for that which is eternal. The wicked, for the wicked, this short life in a fallen world is as good as it gets. Can you imagine that? That this is as good as it gets. But if you know the Most High God, you have gladness both in this fallen world. You have hope and joy and gladness, and it only gets better in the next life. And I don't, I don't know about you guys, but I don't, I don't want to get to the end of my life and, realized, and realize on my deathbed that my whole life I lived for temporal things. I kind of want to keep that picture in mind, and that's why I don't mind doing funerals all the time. It keeps me in perspective. 
What am I living for? Because eventually I'm going to be the one in that box or in that casket. What am I living for today? Do I want to be foolish and live for temporal things or am I going to live for that which is going to go on for eternity? It's a good question. Glad people who live for the eternal and that's why they're glad because they know that what they're doing matters and it's not just going to burn up. It's going to go on. It's going to go on forever. Now, this, this is the stuff, though, right here that I get really excited about, okay, that you're going to be really bored by. Um, if we were writing this psalm, we would put the crescendo of it right at the, at the end, right? Like the crescendo is always at the end of the movie or at the end of the book. Not, not for the Hebrews, not for this ancient East culture. Uh, they put the crescendo right in the middle of the psalm. And uh, the reason why they did this is because this was an oral culture, right? They didn't have Bibles. They weren't sitting there with all their Bibles and, at the synagogues, and they didn't have the printing press. And so what they would do is they would often memorize Scripture. They would memorize traditions. And uh, there's just a repetition, that sort of thing. Um, they, that's how they would pass on Scripture and teachings. Uh, and uh, one of the writing techniques that aids in memorization is called chiasm. So this psalm would be a, in a chiastic structure. Don't fall asleep on me now. Chiastic structure, which basically looks like this. A, B, C, D, C, B, A. That's the flow of thought. So we've reached the climax, letter D, and we're going to go back down to C, B, A. So we go from praise to God's works, to the fate of the wicked, to the Most High God, to the fate of the wicked, to God's works, to praise. And see how I've already memorized it. Basically, that's already, just the, the chiastic structure has already helped me memorize this throughout the week. Isn't that funny? It's the pattern there that helps them memorize this. And uh, anyway, once you get that structure, what's going on in the Hebrew text, it's really hard to see in your Bibles, I know. But uh, the Hebrews would see it a lot clearer, and it'd be easier for them to understand the psalm and uh, interpret it and to memorize it and pass it on. So we're going to go back now down from letter D to letter C. We're going back to the fate of the wicked again here in verse 9. For behold, your enemies, O Lord, uh, for behold, your enemies will perish. All who do iniquity will be scattered. So again, the psalmist reflects on the temporal nature of the wicked. They're going to perish. They're going to be scattered. They may look like they're winning today. The righteous may look like they're losing today, but in the end, God wins, and so do his people. That's uh, something that glad people understand. Uh, God wins because he wins. They do that way. Therefore, they have gladness in the present. Uh, and then we go to letter B again. You have exalted my horn like that of a wild ox. I have been anointed with fresh oil, and my eye has looked exultantly upon my foes. My ears hear of the evildoers who rise up against me. So in contrast to the wicked perishing, the psalmist here gives two positive and personal reflections regarding how God has worked in his life. He, he talks about the horn and the oil, right? So when you think of, uh, of, a, of a horn or horns, uh, think of a position of power, ruling power and position. Wild ox is out there in your pasture. Are you going to go try and rope it? No. You know, nobody messes with a wild ox, 
right? They're powerful. And uh, one day, here's what the, the psalmist is saying, no one's going to touch God's people. The wicked can have their way now, but just wait, right? They're going to be untouchable. The, the saints are going to rule and reign with God. Don't believe me? Read Revelation 2, 26 through 27. They're going to reign with God forever and ever. And, and, and the psalmist is even now already empowered by that thought. And as for the oil, think of someone victoriously appointed to, to uh, a position of power. They pour oil on them. They anoint them. Kind of like we have an anointing from the Holy Spirit. Uh, this has that, that sort of idea. Or you can think of someone being refreshed. If someone's discouraged, they pour oil on them and encourage them. That's, that's the idea there, and I think we can take the principle away from this, that glad people have been empowered and refreshed by knowing the eternal God. They can see through the temporal things going on, the things going on in this world, by knowing there is an eternal God who is with them and for them, and they have hope because of it. And then verses 12 through 14 now, the righteous man will flourish like the palm tree. He'll grow like a cedar in Lebanon, Planted in the house of the Lord, they will flourish in the courts of our God, and they will still yield fruit in old age. They shall be, shall be full of sap. Some of you guys are full of sap, aren't you? Uh, full of sap and very green. And so this is kind of neat for us, this metaphor, because we have this vision, and we've had it for a couple of years now, of deep roots and bearing fruit. And you guys didn't know there were so many roots and fruit metaphors in the Bible, did you? And we've only scratched the surface of them, even though we've been through several passages about it. But, um, you know, one of the reasons I think these stand out to me, the roots and the fruit thing, is I'm just kind of an agriculture type of guy. I really enjoy agriculture. Some of you guys are athletes. Some of you guys are soldiers previously. And those, those sort of metaphors stand out to you. I think the roots and fruit has always stood out to me because uh, just my background in agriculture. But think about that. When God created this world, he built into it spiritual truths. He had the truths in mind before he created it. Right? He knew he was going to come like a lamb before he created the lamb. He created the lamb to, to, to be a picture of his son when he came. That sort of thing is always amazing to me. But uh, the righteous man, it says here, is going to flourish, it says, like a palm tree or a cedar of Lebanon. And so... Uh, what both of these trees have in common is, is four things that I, I've noted. Number one, they're evergreen. They're evergreen. They don't lose their brown color in the winter or in a drought. Palm trees are typically in the desert, right? And we're in a spiritual wilderness right now. and We're in a spiritual drought in our country. And God's people can look like evergreens. Don't let the drought affect them so much because they know the eternal God. I think that's what that's saying there. Um, secondly, they're strong. Palm trees grow tall and strong and majestic. Aren't these palm trees majestic? Look at those wax palms. Those are, some of the, those are the tallest palm trees on earth. I think that uh, the Israelites probably would have been, had more in mind uh, the, the date palm which uh, is powerful as well. It's got a big base and trunk. 
And it's just, it's not, it's not going anywhere. It'd take a lot of work to cut one of them things down. So palm trees, they grow tall, they grow strong. Lebanon's cedars, these were also known. There's a picture of one right there. It was known for being this massive tree. And the lumber was so desired because it doesn't decay easily. It's a hardwood. I should have talked to Daryl about this uh, before I preached it. But cedar, cedar is an excellent wood, right? And it speaks of strength and it speaks of longevity and maturity. These two types of trees outlive many other trees. And then they're refreshing. The palms provide shade in the desert uh, and enjoyable fruits like dates or coconuts. So, again, this is what God's people are to be like. Uh, one man said, There's no more charming or majestic sight than the palm of the oasis. Imagine being in a desert and you see a grove of palm trees. This is the prince among the trees of the plain with its proudly raised diadem of leaves its attitude peering forth into the distance and gazing full into the face of the sun, its perennial verdure and its vital force, which constantly renews itself from the root, a picture of life in the midst of a world of death. That's the palm tree. I wish we had more around here. I had a little one. See that on the, on the piano? That's my object lesson. Little tiny palm tree. But... Um, Unlike the grouse or the grass which sprouts one day and dies the next, these trees last, and they bring refreshment to people around them. And the question we're left with is, what do you want to be? Do you want to be the blade of grass, or do you want to be the majestic and powerful tree, the evergreen? If you do want to be the evergreen tree well number one you got to trust christ right you got to be born again by the spirit of god secondly you got to keep trusting god this faithful and loving god is the one that you keep your focus on to get you through the winters and the droughts glad people are like the tree because they know the eternal god the most high god is always in control and as the psalmist here looks at God's courtyard, I really don't think that's even talking about the temple necessarily. I think he's just talking about God's people gathering, the courtyard. He sees an oasis of palms in the desert. When, when you look at God's people, think of you guys, I'm thinking of you guys right now as a bunch of trees, cedars and palms, an oasis in the desert of this world. Green trees, green green pine trees in the middle of winter that don't lose their color. That's how God looks at his people, and that's how we should think of God's people because they only get more and more majestic with time. They grow, they grow taller, they grow more majestic, they grow stronger. They're not here one day and gone the next like the grass. They keep growing, they keep thriving, and they stay in a state of gladness year-round no matter what the conditions are. Isn't this great? This is a great metaphor for us. I guess you could say we're all a bunch of glad little trees. And Bob Ross was right. How many of you guys watched Bob Ross? You remember him? 
I showed my daughter, JC, this last night. Bob Ross painting, happy little trees. We'll just put a happy little tree right here. It's, it's in your brush. You just got to get it out. So anyway, if, if you've never seen that, you have to go back and, and watch this. I'm sure it's on YouTube. Him painting happy little trees. But that's something of what the psalmist is saying. They're in a state of gladness because they're planted in the Lord and they trust in the Lord. Last letter A. Remember, we're going back to the beginning in this chiastic structure. The call to praise. The call to praise. Verse 15, to declare that the Lord is upright. He is my rock. There is no unrighteousness in him. So the word declare tells us we should be lifting our voices, praising God because of who he is. He's upright. He's a, he's a rock. There's no unrighteousness in him, which means he's, he, he doesn't make a covenant and not keep it. He's a straight shooter. He can't go back on his covenant. It's against his nature. He's a loving and faithful God. No matter what we go through, we should rejoice. He's our rock. Isn't that great? Glad people can praise God for who he is and what he does. That's why they're glad. And as we consider all of the junk going on in this world, let's remember, guys, that uh, we have a most high God who reigns over all forever. And uh, aren't you glad you're a tree? I'd rather be a tree than a blade of grass. And let's seek to introduce people to this eternal God who can give their life meaning and significance because I don't... I don't know of any time in recent history, history where people have been more open to hear the gospel and open to God. We've been living in some tough, difficult couple of years, and God is working and people are seeking. So let's, let's pray for opportunities to share the gospel with people so they can become trees too.